Actually, I think Laura's going to do her time traveling lawyer segment. Whatever. Laura, right? that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And what Speaking a, of doing our jobs, doing their jobs hey, well. Guess what? I still did <laughs> yeah. my job better than the U.S. Senate. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Welcome to Find Laws, Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Allie Marshall. Hello. Joe Fawbush. Good day to you all. And Andy Leonetti. Hi. <laughs> I was like, I wasn't laughing at you. I was laughing at how formal Joe was being. <laughs> just, just trying to get us a little professionalism on this podcast. That's all. Like it's Friday afternoon. That's not going to happen. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, so today we're talking about executive orders. Um, Woo! <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> we were talking about... This is a great topic. Yep, we're talking about what executive orders are, how other presidents have used them, and what we might expect to see as far as executive orders come January, February. We'll veer here into political analysis for like 10 seconds that even if Democrats are able to capture control of the Senate in January runoffs, their majority will be the slimmest majority possible. And the House majority will also be extremely tight. So that renders the possibility of big legislation pretty much a non-starter because, you know, as we know, lawmakers will continue a point that I like to keep harping on throughout the life of this podcast, as lawmakers continue to abdicate their responsibility to actually make laws, <laughs> it just means we are more likely to get uh, more lawmaking from the executive branch and all of the fun that comes with that in the form of executive orders mm -hmm. and uh, new regulations that rely on existing statutory authority so uh, once again shout out to the world's greatest deliberative body the u.s senate for really sucking at your job and prove me wrong do we have those t-shirts printed yet world's greatest deliberative body oh. <laughs> <laughs> if, if i i defy any of our listeners out there to find me, <laughs> to find me a business or social club or anything that functions worse than the U.S. Senate. You guys. Could you tell us how you really feel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Andy, you're always so cryptic about everything. Anyway. <laughs> so... Yeah, uh, Joe. I think you have a little bit of a um, a little bit of a history lesson about uh, executive orders before I start getting into the uh, the theoretical. All right. Uh, yeah. Sure, Andy. I'll start. Um, Why? Thank you, Joseph. I guess my yeah. You're, you're very welcome. <laughs> this is my audition tape for National Public Radio. So <laughs> you know, humor Time me for a little lesson. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what executive orders are, because there's no real definition 
Uh, it's not in the Constitution. Um, they can kind of encompass anything that's on the mind of the president. Um, you know, and the media. And the media, yep. We can. So we've seen executive orders on how best to celebrate Columbus Day. Love uh, it. You know, to actually, I don't love it actually, at all. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, to things that are actually super important, like the internment of Japanese citizens during World War II. So there's a wide range of things uh, that that they can do. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about that, Andy, you already touched on a little bit is how important executive orders have become in the modern era. And it is mostly because uh, Congress is delegating a lot more authority to the executive branch. You're being very kind And here. so there's, I am, I am. And so the importance that, that the executive branch plays in really kind of passing executive orders orders that have the force of law uh, has, and this is my opinion, has increased in, in recent years. Um, so Laura, you can get kind of into the right, history. I'm going to interrupt one but, more time. It's not your opinion. It's actually, it's quite correct. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So yeah, I just wanted to talk briefly too about Youngstown Sheet and Tube. Uh, this was a 50s Supreme Court case uh, where the court kind of laid out the parameters under which the court can review executive orders for being constitutional. Uh, and actually more than the majority, the uh, concurring opinion by um, Justice Jackson has actually kind of helped establish the rule more so than the majority opinion by Justice Black. And under this framework, there is basically uh, three different levels under which an executive order can be judged as constitutional. One, the highest one, is when Congress explicitly gives the president or the executive branch authority in that area. And in that case, the president has uh, really wide latitude to accomplish what he or she wants. The second one he called the zone of twilight. And... This I is... love that book series. <laughs> Loved it. That was my dad's favorite <laughs> growing up. <laughs> no, that's that's Twilight Zone. I was thinking of the vampires, but yes, carry on, Joe. <laughs> it it is actually a really weird way of phrasing it, but yeah, this is basically just the gray area where it's not clear. And then the third one, and the most uh, difficult for the um, president to pass executive orders. In is the one where Congress has explicitly said the opposite of what the president wants to do. Um, so that's kind of the tripartite framework under which we that we still use uh, to determine whether an executive order is constitutional. And executive orders are regularly deemed unconstitutional. President Trump has had some that have been limited, some that have been uh, deemed uh, too much. So it does still happen. As did. President Obama before him and President Bush as well. Yeah, absolutely. We don't, we don't want to lay the blame yeah. for the imperial presidency at the feet of one person. No, and yeah, no, well, that's we, a good... We probably can, and I'll get into it on Time Traveling Lawyer. <laughs> so a sneak peek, I'm guessing Laura's going to talk again about FDR, which is... Of course. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we can't get away from Hamilton. I can't Hamilton and stop we... talking about yeah. FDR. <laughs> My favorite benevolent <laughs> dictator, <laughs> FDR. 
so yeah, no, that was a good point though, Andy, because yeah, this is happening, you know, really since FDR. So this is not a uh, president Trump thing. This is not a president Obama thing. This is a all modern president thing uh, where executive orders seem to be increasing in importance and number each president in the modern era has, you know, issued hundreds of these, uh, you know, whereas George Washington had one. So, you know, executive orders are here to stay. Um, and while they can be gone too far, uh, go ahead, Andy. I'll just, I just want to say anyone who is remotely interested in the sausage making on the Hill, <laughs> I, cha- I would encourage you to just read bills and because executive orders all claim some sort of statutory authority. Um, and read, I mean, legislation is, I mean, let's, I mean, I know it's not in plain English, but just look for the phrase in legislative text, the secretary of blank, blank, blank agency name, health and human services, education, defense, whatever, shall promulgate regulations to like, that is yep. Congress abdicate, that is Congress abdicating its job to the executive branch. And it happens all the time. And you're absolutely right in that almost every executive order that seeks to accomplish something uh, says that it's doing so under a certain statute from Congress. Um, That is right. You know, there are a few things that sometimes go away from that, but then the executive orders that do that tend to be more for political showmanship than they are for actually accomplishing something, which, which sometimes does happen too, right? Sometimes executive orders are just issued because it's an affirmative action that a president can take unilaterally that says, I'm, I'm doing something and this is what I'm doing. And so that that does sometimes happen too. I was just thinking, I would love to have some executive order issuing power in my own household. I feel like this could be a really effective tool. And then like present it at the press conferences with like my signature uh-huh. and like my family must have listening, this. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway. Yeah. No, I like that idea. Have a little ceremony around the kitchen table where you hold up mm-hmm. like a, a signed, uh, you know, with a fancy pen. Yep. I like it. Do the dishes. <laughs> yeah. It is hereby ordered. Damn it. <laughs> but yeah, that that's all I got. I just kind of wanted to touch briefly on, on some of the basics for, for people who haven't been thinking about executive orders in a while. So I think, Laura, you've got some more stuff on the history of executive orders, and and you can tell us more about Hamilton and FDR. (laughs) Yes, that's right, Joe. I I apparently am also auditioning for NPR today. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like as I was writing this, but you are correct. I do have a Hamilton joke in here. Um, So as Joe mentioned, every president... Um, with the exception of William Henry Harrison, who famously died after only being president for a month, um, they've all issued executive orders, some more than others. Uh, George Washington had only eight, um, but our boy FDR issued more than 3,000. And our first few presidents didn't do a whole lot with executive orders. None really made a splash publicly until the Civil War. So first up, 
uh, with a featured executive order, I guess, <laughs> is Abraham Lincoln. Um, right before the Civil War broke out, state militias were starting to get riled up and Congress wasn't in session, which is, especially back then, was a very common time that executive orders would come out. And Lincoln wanted to lock up one of the militia leaders, John Merriman, so he had him arrested for treason and pretty much planned to hold him indefinitely. And Merriman's lawyer tried to get a writ of habeas corpus to get Merriman in front of a judge in a timely manner, as you're supposed to. And he's essentially saying, Mr. President, you can't just lock this guy up without giving him a trial. And Lincoln's response was essentially, and here's my Hamilton joke for the day, was, you know what? We can go ahead and change that. You know why? Because I'm the president. And so he issued an executive order that stripped Merriman of his habeas corpus rights. And that was basically it. Afterwards, Congress passed the Habeas Corpus Act, which allowed for this to happen in certain circumstances. And that was later repealed. Um, but that was probably the first executive order that people were like, whoa, the president can do this. This is crazy. Oh, and actually, I have one more thing about Lincoln. Um, Lincoln also issued what is arguably the most famous executive order, the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and then skipping ahead to Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who was probably the first president to really go after it with executive orders. He issued more than a thousand. Bully for him. Bully. Uh, and not to be outdone, as I mentioned, FDR issued more. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> These uh these Roosevelts they love their oh. they love their executive orders. <laughs> as we mentioned, FDR issued more than three thousand executive orders during his time as president. Uh, to be exact, it was three thousand seven hundred and twenty-one. So he was getting pretty close to four thousand actually. Um, and as Joe mentioned, one of the biggest, or I guess one of the first big challenges to an executive order was um, Harry Truman who tried to take control of the steel industry via executive order during the Korean War. Uh, the Supreme Court pretty much said nope, and that was Youngstown Sheet and Tube versus Sawyer. Uh, if you're in constitutional law right now, go ahead and use that summary in class. I'm sure you'll do really well. <laughs> uh, Truman also it used an executive order to end racial segregation in the United States military, uh, which is something that several presidents have used. They've taken the executive order and used it to enforce civil rights legislation. Uh, for example, Eisenhower used it in 1957 to send federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas to help integrate the public schools. And executive orders also often come into play during wartime, um, whether it's taking control of the steel companies or in 1999 when President Clinton even waged a war via executive order um, by going around Congress and starting the Balkan War all by himself. That opened a, that opened a nice <laughs> Pandora's box over the last 20 or so years. <laughs> it sure did, yeah. Um, and I guess one last thing I wanted to talk about because I, I find it interesting is that um, executive orders were mostly undocumented and unnoticed by the general public until the early 1900s. Uh, it wasn't until 1907 when the State Department began they started retroactively numbering executive orders, but for some reason they only went as far back as 1862. So President Lincoln's executive order on habeas corpus is actually known as executive order number one. And then it goes from there. But nobody seems to really know why they didn't go all the way back to Washington. Bunch of lazy guys. Yeah. 
was it they just gave up after you know, that's that's good i mean enough. it took forever to go to go <laughs> <laughs> you could die of dysentery along the way <laughs> yep exactly on trail um so that's all i have for time traveling lawyer um thanks for letting me do that again <laughs> Yeah, so let's move from the past into the future. The future, the future, the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. I please keep that in. Um, <laughs> oh, the first thing I was thinking of was great. the old Conan O'Brien. Uh, oh yes. Um, yeah, so let's, you know, this is today, this is being recorded on November 20th, 2020. Um, and so do you, do you need an alibi? This is, um, yeah. <laughs> it is approximately 4pm central standard so, time. All I'm saying, all home. I'm just going to say is that this yeah. is all theoretical in nature of, <laughs> of when these things might happen depending on if and when the occupant of the uh at the head of the executive branch you know changes um so there is a lot that um activists are clamoring for a uh theoretical Joe Biden administration to do using executive action. Um, just people are, some activists are a little more uh, realist about what can and cannot get done through Congress. Um, and so it's, it's likely that a, that a first Biden term would look an awful lot like a second Obama term, which where a lot of major policy changes like, like DACA happened through executive order, um, except people are now wanting a theoretical President Biden to go bigger than that. And so some of the uh, potential, I've got a little rundown here of some of the potential uh, big changes that might come and then uh, subsequently get uh, just stomped into the, stomped into the curb by the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> so the, the first one is um, use it. Uh, I'm also going to shout out David Dayan of the American Prospect magazine for doing a lot of this legwork for us. Um, he's done a lot of work in a, a pretty lengthy project at that magazine called the first day agenda. Um and so anyway, a lot of this is taken from his ideas and his con consultations with attorneys and activists and whoever else. Uh, one of the big ones is to use Section 1881A of the Social Security Act to extend free Medicare coverage to any person who is the subject of, quote, environmental exposure. Uh, many ways you can go here, including uh, including COVID-19, 
since basically everyone is being exposed to a, uh, I guess, what you could loosely term an environmental hazard. Uh, people exposed to global warming, um, other things like that. The justification lies in a a small provision in the Affordable Care Act, which used this law to extend Medicare coverage to the entire town of Libby, Montana. Uh, residents there are basically exposed to the um, horrible air quality of the Superfund site to end all Superfund sites. Um, and using that environmental exposure language to extend the coverage. The next one, which... Well, actually, first, I want to ask you, Andy, do you think that that proposal has a better or worse chance than, what, like 0.05% of actually surviving? I would put... I would, I, would, I, would put I would put that one at a negative infinity percent of, yeah. <laughs> of surviving. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. combine that with the fact that Joe Biden explicitly ran on not giving on not universal health care. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect him to expend much political capital on that. Um, second one, which is getting a lot of uh, uh, press and think pieces and whatever else navel gazing. Uh, is canceling a large chunk of student debt um, using the, quote, Compromise and Settlement Authority granted under the Higher Ed Act of 1965. Um, the argument goes that you can essentially use this, this argument uh, brought forward by a Yale PhD student, um, argues that you can essentially use a strategy similar to prosecutorial discretion where Department of Ed basically decides not to collect on student loans. And because mm -hmm. the vast, 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 vast majority of student loans are now federally backed, they, it's not sure what would be able to get in the way of this because the Supreme Court doesn't really tell the executive branch whether to enforce something or not. And the, and I mean, although all bets are out the window now for no reason whatsoever. Um, but <laughs> if the department of ed basically considers every college student, a, you know, financially strapped and whatever, and they're going to use their discretion to not require repayment of the loans, then I could see that having a better chance of surviving some sort of judicial scrutiny and making a lot of people extremely upset and a lot of people extremely happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could, I could, I could see them not collecting for the duration of, of the term, but I don't know that they couldn't, you know, get rid of it all. They would just not be collecting, right? Correct. So then if an incoming administration came in, then they could just turn on this faucet. Bingo. Bingo, bango, yeah. Joe. Uh, there are, that. that is one of the big things is that you would basically have to 
get all future presidents to agree to this. Um, the Office of Management and Budget would probably have something to say about it because collecting on these loans is a source of revenue for the government. And right now, uh, the federal government backs like one and a half trillion dollars of student loan debt. Um, and that is that is a mm -hmm. major source of revenue. And losing that would be not good for the balance sheet. Um, and and the other thing is that any loan debt that might be not collected on or forgiven, if it is termed as forgiven, um, the IRS might want to tax that money, which if you're a recent college grad with a giant loan and then all of a sudden that loan is forgiven and the IRS says, oh, you owe taxes on that. There's a whole with what money um, there, 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 there is, mm -hmm. there is a whole lot of, um, second, what's the term? Second. Second, like, uh, collateral consequences. Yeah. Collateral damage as, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger would call it. <laughs> <laughs> Another big one. I like this one. This is one that is very near and dear to my heart as a child of a postal worker, of a retired postal worker, um, create creating a postal banking system. Oh, I've heard of this, actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is essentially... Do they do this in the UK? Oh, yeah, a lot of European countries yeah. do it, actually. Okay. It is basic, basically using the post office as a free form of banking for people who are, you know, not part of the financial system. They don't have savings accounts, checking accounts, whatever, because of uh, it's too hard for them to access or they don't make any money or anything like that. There's any, any to any time some like liberal technocrat proposes some, some super complex tax credit, um, one of the big hurdles to that is always that a lot of people that this might help, that these ideas may help is that they actually, these people don't have bank, people don't have banking accounts. Fun fact I read is that, you know, the post office is the only, pretty much the only business corporation, whatever in the country that has a physical brick and mortar location in every zip code in the country. 59% of post offices are located in zip codes with no physical bank branches. And, and oh, wow. I know, yeah, that's, think about a lot of those uh, r r extremely rural zip codes and mm -hmm. combine that with lack of broadband internet. And some people have a hard time doing online banking even. Um, and mm -hmm. so existing law prohibits the USPS from offering quote, new non-mail services. However, the USPS has for a long time, provided money orders and other non-banking financial services. So there is an argument to be made that this wouldn't actually be anything new. This would just kind of be an extension of, of current, of what they've always 
done and, and just a new way for the post office to try and uh, make make some revenue. Um, but it would also probably involve having to stack the postal postal service board of governors, uh, which would have to get through Senate confirmation and all that. Wow, that's really interesting. I li- I like it just because it's keeping banks on their toes because banks are watching this yeah. closely and like you know maybe maybe they'll go easy on the overdraft fees for some people or you know because because everybody <laughs> I mean that, that's like everybody's biggest complaint yeah right? if you if you don't have a lot of money in your bank account mm-hmm. then you mm-hmm. end up paying more anyway so yeah there's a lot of ways that that won't and help. I li- yeah I like and a, a postal too. banking service wouldn't have to you know, offer mortgages and things like that, that, that your local bank branch does It literally be a place to, for people to deposit cash and write checks. It does. Yeah. It, and not, and not, and not get charged. Yeah, all the exa- fees Exactly. That, that they would otherwise. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another big one is compelling lower drug prices using, um, the quote eminent domain for patents power of federal IP law to lower drug prices. Um, this was done. The most recent time that this was really threatened was in 2001. Um, when then HHS secretary, Tommy Thompson was trying to procure a large government stockpile of Cipro when everyone was worried that we were all going to start getting, that we were all going to get anthrax in the mail. Um, Mm. And I, the name of the drug company escapes me, um, but they were basically playing hardball on it. And secretary Thompson said, okay, I will distribute your intellectual property to uh, generic drug makers. And very quickly, it they came to the bargaining table. Um, and so using this power, you would still have to compensate drug makers who you, in essence, take their IP from. And you probably wouldn't want to do it a lot. Um, but it is something that could happen in a emergency, which we, the country is certainly in right now. Um, mm-hmm. and there are just a host of other ones that, um, those are like the big sexy ones that are like big. <laughs> um, and so, and so are the nothing sexier than a postal banking system. <laughs> Heck yeah. But what we are more likely to see is uh, reinstating the Obama Clean Power Plan, which uh, set some pretty stringent emissions uh, caps on power plants under the authority of the Clean Air Act, Um, probably undoing rollbacks of federal lands protections, uh, such as right now what's happening in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, trying to convert the federal vehicle fleet to electric, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, um, implementing green construction standards in federal contracting, um, requiring American-made steel 
stuff like that in federal contracting, uh, restarting pattern or practice investigations into police departments. Um, another big one, um, descheduling marijuana. Uh, oh, that right could on. happen without an act of Congress. Full legalization would require an act of Congress, but descheduling it would is pretty simple. Um, and you could use also instructing federal prosecutors to go easy on marijuana in states that have legalized it. So these are ones, though, that that are just being floated out there, right? These aren't necessarily ones that uh, the incoming administration has said that they're going to do. Correct. The, a lot of these things were part of a, these, these last ones that I mentioned are, were part of a, like, uh, Biden Sanders kind of unity plan okay. um, that everyone could could live with, but I mean these are all things that people would kind of expect, uh, like uh, getting rid of the what's it called the global uh, what's it, the the like shorthand for it the gag the global the abortion one. Oh yeah, yeah. was that the Mexico City one? Yeah, the Mexico. It's called like it's called like the Mexico City rule or like the global gag rule or whatever. Oh, okay. Where yeah, where we don't like give money to Mm organ to international organizations that like help pay for abortion. Like that'll be the the that switches every time control of the presidency switches parties, Um, and that that'll happen again on day one, probably. Yeah. As as would re, probably rejoining the Par- the Paris Accords. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I just I hadn't heard any uh, interest about descheduling marijuana. Well, the, so that that one kind of yeah. The me. well the uh, I certainly wouldn't expect a full throated endorsement of that from the incoming reefer madness president that were that we. <laughs> Right. Not that we condone the use of of illicit substances on fine laws. Don't judge me. Well, but it's become a nonpartisan (laughs) issue in a lot of areas. It's it's not a so it might be. I mean, as more states pass pass laws legalizing it or at least the medical use of it, then I think it will become higher up on that list for maybe either president. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Note to every single elected official. It was just fully legalized in South Dakota. Yep. <laughs> I think I think it's yep. safe to consider that this issue is uh, resolved <laughs> in the minds of the American public. Yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> I think we're ready. Yeah. <laughs> I learned a lot today. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> I contributed very little, but I learned a lot, and that's all that matters. <laughs> well, Allie, don't you? have uh, some fun ideas for the lawyers in our lives for this holiday season? Let me rephrase. What I meant was (laughs) I'm not going to contribute anything meaningful, but I'm happy to provide some garbage (laughs) content. Um, You know, I mean, let's talk about stuff, right? We have nothing serious going on in the world. Let's talk about good old fashioned consumerism. (laughs) Yes. Yes, let's um, get back to yeah. normal, baby. <laughs> I love it. What really That's matters. Right. That's what we're Stuff. about. Um, okay, so we're obviously we're entering the gift buying season. Um, there's a lot of holidays. People are celebrating in the next couple months. And 
given the lockdowns and people staying home to be safe, uh, this year I'm personally thinking of going probably the more in the realm of like Etsy and similar services uh, for my shopping for all the lawyer type people in my life and other type people. Etsy is There's not There's only a paid really two kinds. Fine laws don't judge. <laughs> no, they. Etsy is, Etsy is not. But yeah, there's really two type of people, types of people, right? Lawyer type and non-lawyer type. <laughs> so I don't, I don't yep. know. Um, in any case, you know, supporting some small businesses. And I, honestly, I went there and I was so totally blown away by how many creative options there are um, for lawyers or lawyer type people, law students, um, no matter what they're interested in. So for example, if they're in or honoring RBG, there's a ton of options paying tribute, um, or maybe they like the traditional gavel or skills of justice adorned wear. Um, that's also f- common. Um, they might be into coffee mugs that say snarky things, and the list there is <laughs> endless. Um, some of them I'm going to need to be um, <clears throat> edited, beeped out, um, but but they're good. Um, so some examples include a mug that says, enjoying my hot cup of the opposing council's tears. That was a good one. I like that. Uh, one that. I like that a lot. <laughs> has a Google search for best lawyer ever, and then you can put the person's name <laughs> in the search, which I thought was cute. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Can you um, do worse? Yeah, I like that. You you probably could. Yeah, you probably <laughs> could, and it would be somebody else's name yeah. that you hate. Um, you can. Uh, there's one that says yes, you're being billed for this, so that would be fun to have while you're talking to a client. <laughs> Um, and then yep. this is the one that's going to need to be beeped. Um, it's, I'm a lawyer, not a f-ing magician. So <laughs> beep on that one, but that was good. Um, then if, you know, if you're looking more for apparel as a gift, uh, there's a t-shirt that says, we'll give legal advice for tacos. And just for the record, I will absolutely give legal <laughs> advice for tacos. I'll give legal advice. For, I'll give legal <laughs> advice for tacos. And I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> No, hey, I like it. Andy, that's called unlawful practice. Yeah, UPL for tacos. There's a button that says I'm too hot for my briefs. That's another good one. <laughs> I don't know. Here's a few more uh, cufflinks uh, that say everyone's favorite asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Again, yes. another, another beep for that. Yes, um, I like that one. And then there, here's some cute. Here's a really cute one. And I, I Laura will will know what I'm talking about here. Um, so you can get a caricature of this person's face, take, take a picture of them and have them like drawn into a law office or in any setting that you want. I personally, um, am pursuing this for my dog and like there's, this is a whole genre (laughs) of like putting people's faces on other bodies, like Renaissance characters or like superheroes or whatever. So, um, something kind of like that would be uh, humorous and, um, and could be kind of a sweet gift. There are comics for the disgruntled lawyer. Uh, humor that cuts too deep is what that is titled. Um, and then finally, my personal favorites, because I'm <clears throat> very into cross-stitch. That's right. Mm-hmm. I'm admitting it here on the air. Um, that was cool. <laughs> it keeps me busy and sitting still, um, but mostly snarky cross-stitch. And this one, uh, the first one is dance like no one is watching, email like it may one be one day be read aloud in a deposition. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. That's a cross-stitch option. Yeah. That's long. <laughs> and finally, yeah. the last thing that is probably, I'm just going to say to my family, who isn't listening, 
um, that this would be on my <laughs> list because it combines three things that I love, RBG, Harry Potter, and cross-stitch. And it says, there's a little image of uh, RBG, and it says, my Patronus is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> So, oh, anyway, oh, man. is the lots Patronus of cute, lots of is the Patronus like that expecto expecto Patronum? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the thing that comes out of your mm-hmm. wine. The, de- the deer, the dementors, the deer. Yes, right. Exactly. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep. It's usually an animal yeah. of some kind. Um. Anyway, lots of cool ideas for gifts if you're you know looking for something a little bit non traditional, like obviously not a briefcase or like formal like office wear because people aren't going in anymore. Um. So right. anyway, yeah. <laughs> Buy something for the lawyer you love. <laughs> Lawyers are people too. <laughs> That's right. That's coming from me. Yes, we are. <laughs> Despite what Andy said. <laughs> uh, thanks, Allie. Those are all really great ideas. And, you know, it's kind of nice to to end it on a positive note where we're not talking about a super serious issue and then I have to go into the outro. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review if you want. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, please send us an email to podcasts at tr.com. So, yeah, I wanted to bring up uh, Youngstown Sheet and Tube just because this kind of started the <laughs> parameters under which uh, executive orders were deemed as constitutional. Thanks, Andy. This is hard when you're... Okay. I'm... No, it's literally... No, literally... it's... Uh, he's... It's... No. Andy, this is Andy. It's, this it's is literally not the you. Name. It's literally just <laughs> yes, Youngstown Sheet exactly. and Tube. Okay. Sheet and just... Tube. <laughs> All right. It's a steel... It's a steel manufacturer i mean i know yeah. i know what youngstown ohio is all about i just <laughs> sorry i went from like series of tubes to jeffrey tube to, to jeffrey tubin to just <laughs> oh no i am sorry no you were completely i'm it's sorry Joe. Series. It was, no that's you okay i just was totally fine okay all right <laughs>